We can appreciate art and also understand the ways in which it is problematic. Welcome again to uh, High Level Casting. I'm Jeremy, and today I am with my guest host. Uh, go ahead and introduce yourself. My name is Holly, and I am not a film critic by any measure, but I do consider myself a connoisseur of media aimed at children ages 8 to 12, Excellent. which is what qualifies me to make commentary about this film, a movie that I watched when I was between the ages of 8 and 12. I think that makes you, you know, instantly an expert by today's standards. So welcome. We'll be discussing The Thief and the Cobbler. Uh, Also known as Arabian Night from the much maligned Miramax cut, which we will discuss. The Thief and the Cobbler, a spectacular adventure on a truly epic scale. Before we get into kind of the history and Richard Williams and how uh, we kind of got sucked into his world with this, how did you initially get sucked into this world, Holly? Like, how'd you learn about this film? You kind of mentioned it, but give me, give me some more detail. Well, when I was a kid in rural Northern California, there was a VHS rental store, a local VHS rental store named Figuritos fondly referred to as figs. And when I was a child, an only child with no friends or siblings, my dad would take me to figs because they had a like three for two VHS rental deal. So I was allowed to just meander the hallways, the much storied, disgusting, unvacuumed, gum encrusted hallways of figs and pick out three VHS tapes to take home for the weekend. And I remember often going into the children's animation section because everything sort of like freaked me out or looked boring. And so I would like go around the children's animation section, just sort of like pulling titles off at random and examining them and discarding all the ones that didn't look outwardly interesting enough, which is how I ended up watching a lot of sort of super weird uh, (laughs) bottom shelf because that's how tall I was. Um, VHS tapes. So that was how I came across this movie, which I was immediately taken with because, as we'll probably talk about later, the animation, even in the sort of reconstructed commercial release, is astonishingly vivid. And just it's a really beautiful movie. And especially in this sort of contemporary age of animation where everything looks like one of three ways and it's all sort of it's either like Disney-fied or it's that like aggressively horrific like adult Netflix animation style or it's the Cartoon Network bean mouth. Like those are the sort of three categories of animation that exist now in popular culture. And this movie defies all of those animation styles, which I think is why it stuck with me for so long. Oh yeah, the animation the- by perspective or however Richard Williams describes it. Um, yeah. That's the... the- that's the thing whenever uh, I, I just very recently watched this film for the very first time and I watched the recobbled cut off of YouTube off of your recommendation. And uh, it was something that I was kind of familiar with. There was kind of this lore behind it. Um, and it was mostly like one of these forgotten films. And I think what's interesting is, is not only 
isn't forgotten by like the standards of release and uh, like how many people went and saw it, how much budget did it rate or how much did it rake in uh, versus its budget, but also kind of the way you describe discovering it, like just discovering it in, you know, a rental store at, at the end of rental stores, you know, like this, this, this now long forgotten era of media consumption, which is, you know, the, uh, the dried and yellowed uh, VHS tape that you're like, Oh, this looks weird. Uh, like sign me up. And so, um, as we, uh, after I watched it, I, the more I wanted to learn about it. And I think that's one of the interesting things about this film is like, once you see it or you see part of it, you're like, what the hell is this? How did this come to be? And yeah, you, you immediately have to uh, tie to its creator, Richard Williams, which not all animated films or films in general, like draw you to, because like you, you begin to ask these questions of how, when, why, as far as history goes, uh, getting into The Thief and the Cobbler, it says that, uh, you know, if you go to the Wikipedia page, uh, it has three release dates, which is already super odd for a film. Uh, you have the uh, work print from 1992. You have the 1993 Princess and the Cobbler release. And then you have the Arabian Night 1995 release which I think that's the one that you ended up watching was the Miramax Arabian Nights. Well, in preparation for this episode, I also watched the recobbled version on YouTube, which I've actually never seen before. But the version that I'm most familiar with, yes, is the Arabian Night Miramax version, which is, I think, widely renowned as the director's least favorite version. Everyone who's a Richard Williams stan, I guess, to use the words of the youth, rejects sort of resoundingly rejects the Miramax version as the popular but least true to the artist's vision version. Yeah, the most the, processed version, you know, right. like we got to make more the money. The most palatable, yeah. We got to we got to add some stuff to this and we got The gotta dirty agree. capitalist's version. Ooh, my favorite. Um but yeah, um <laughs> Gross. The Dirty Capitalist sounds like a a drink that you order at a bar that you want to leave. So tell me, uh, what do you know about the the history of Richard Williams? Well, honestly, I think you did more preparatory research for this episode than I did. So you probably know more about him than me. Yeah, I kind of dove went into a a Wikipedia hole, you know, where you just keep clicking. As one does. As sort of a brief overview, my understanding is that he started in animation because he first saw Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, which was, you know, one of the first animated feature release films and became, you know, very invested in the big one animation as a career. And there were some animators, I guess, on Snow White and the Seven Dwarves who later became his animation colleagues. So he did some other stuff. He worked in advertising for a while and did animated advertisements Mm-hmm. But he was always very against sort of corporate art and against the idea of like making art for the consumption of the wealthy just because they demanded that he do it. And I think he was so there was from from very early on, my understanding is that he's always very committed to his very singular vision of what animation could be and how he could get it to that point. He worked on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which yeah, is that's also the big one. a movie that I is very dear to my heart. And I think that that ties into this ideological premise that was important to him, this idea that animation was something that could grow up is I think a quote that 
there's often attributed to him this idea that animation is something that can't, it doesn't necessarily need to just be relegated to children's media, can't just be relegated to things that people can brush off. Like animation can be high art, animation yeah. can be not just raunchy compelling. Comedy. Right. Yeah. It, it can be, it can compete in leagues with live action movies in terms of, of artistic worth. Which is interesting to circle back to Who Framed Roger Rabbit to not just compete, but to coexist within it. As I was kind of digging into William's career, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, he he didn't initially want to work on it because he he thought the idea, when it was pitched to him, would, wouldn't be beautiful. It would be ugly. And so he was in, initially uh, resistant to making the film, but it would eventually become the fuel that would turn his passion project into a real reality. The money that he made off of Who Framed Roger Rabbit and the acclaim, he was able to kind of funnel into his company and over the next several years kind of pretty much burn all of his cash into that. And um, what's interesting is why uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit worked is the, one of the same reasons why uh, The Thief and the Cobbler are, is still just kind of renowned in its animation. And it's also its downfall because it's the amount of pictures that you have to draw in order to make the animation as seamless as he does. And whenever you watch his film to just kind of, you can tell the parts that, had his like his high standards and the parts that didn't either you know clearly shifting to the work print though i imagined with your perspective of watching the arabian night version uh you might do you skip around the animation can you kind of tell when it when there's a, a decrease in standards i think that the most notable component of the arabian night version that sort of makes it clear that there were parts of it that were slapdash or that the character designs change like between scenes because there were scenes the crux of the story of this movie is that he worked on it for like more than 24 years eventually he ran out of money and the studio sold the rights to all to these various third parties and the project was essentially stolen from him because it wasn't it, it could never be on time. Anybody who invested in it immediately pulled out because it was so wildly over budget because animation is expensive. Art is. is difficult and you had, it takes a lot of money to do. And nobody just, no one was willing to put forward the resources to make, you know, a single movie that was going to take 30 years to animate because Richard Williams was a perfectionist and he was yeah. very committed to his art meeting a certain standard as you said so i think that when you watch the miramax version sometimes like the colors of the characters change or like there's you know there's all this stuff that it's feels at odds with the very carefully crafted scenes where the animation stands out and it's clear that those scenes were made intentionally to highlight the challenge of of the animation and then there are some other scenes that's clearly just like, oh, this is just filler garbage that was right. put in by Miramax because there wasn't enough existing animation to make an entire plot. Yeah, and to kind of get into the numbers just a little bit with like how high his standards were, an animation industry standard to have like good animation, you have one picture for every two frames of film. Okay. But what Richard Williams wanted is he wanted a picture for every single frame. So he was literally creating twice as much animation 
that Disney was on, on their films, which is why there was such a time sink, which is why there was such a money sink, is that he literally was doubling his work in order to make this project beautiful, to like have those standards up as high as they were. In one of these articles that I read as part of research for this episode, there's this quote that I highlighted, which says, the film's first 10 minutes of footage took 14 years to complete and cost about 1.5 million British pounds to produce, which adjusted for inflation is about $31 million. So $31 million and 14 years for 10 minutes of footage, if that gives you any sense. The recobbled fan-made version, which is assembled from various bits and pieces of the movie. I think the maybe the test cut and also there's some pencil sketches and some various other things. Altogether, the recobbled cut runs about an hour and 45 minutes. I think the Miramax cut is about an hour and 15 minutes. But, you know, when, when you're looking at metrics like this, like every minute is like hundreds of thousands of dollars and you know like a whole every minute is a year's worth of work essentially there's a a really great article that i also read by the verge uh and i believe they point out that when the project was taken from him he had like 15 minutes to go uh so it seems like you know it's just 15 minutes but based off the numbers that you have already like said labor uh and you know materials all that like we're we're still talking you know, millions of dollars in order to get this done. But at the same time, if you're trying to produce a film that's, you know, 90 minutes, you know, to two hours long, to be 15 minutes short after working on it for 20 to 30 years, it's just heartbreaking. You know, you can It's a lifetime's get- worth of work. It's, it's, a, it's a life's investment taken from you because your production company finally was like, well, you are never going to make us any money. You're just going to cost us money forever and ever until you're dead. So therefore we are done. Yeah. And we need to recoup the costs at this point. So we're just going to shove this movie out and we're going to shove it out like right at the same time that Aladdin is really hitting theaters and we'll get into the timing with that. And the fact that Aladdin was apparently planned to come out at the same time as the thief and the cobbler initially was, uh, is another big thing, which is like, that's a, that's a very Disney move. Oh, your competition is coming out that weekend. We have the name recognition. We're going to crush them in the box office. And so, Did you find any evidence in your research that the creation of the movie Aladdin was inspired or influenced in any way by The Thief and the Cobbler? It's nothing more than the pure like speculation. And this comes up in Disney a lot, right? Where there's no smoking gun. You look at one work and you look at another and you look at when they're being released. And it's, it's one thing to say that, you know, like films like Armageddon and Deep Impact are being released at the same time because of similar ideas. And kind of another one to compare it to is uh, The Lighthouse is actually based off of an actual like story that happened with uh, two people uh, getting stranded in a lighthouse. And uh, those stories were being made into movies. There are several other releases that came out at the same time as the uh, Pattinson Defoe Lighthouse. So this kind of tends to happen where like, you see a creative idea and you start seeing a studio pour money into it. And then another studio is like, Hey, what's going on here? How can we jump in on this? Like they're already putting this idea out. You already start seeing the good old capitalist machine start rolling. Right. And so like the moment that, you know, you have this 
high level, like big reputation. Who Framed Roger Rabbit, you know, made millions. His movie, Richard Williams' movie is coming out. Uh, and, you know, you've got a couple of years and it's just like, you know what? Let's uh, let's start putting a little, a little bit more oomph in Aladdin. When's that coming out? Oh, let's put that on the same date. And just it's competition, but also it's super duper cutthroat. You can like start, we can get into the ethics of it, but you know. I mean, also the animation community is probably not huge. Like there's, right. I would assume that the animators, there's like the Venn diagram of animators that worked for all these various studios overlapped or at least communicated with one another. So it's hard to imagine that anyone could work on a project in complete secrecy, especially, yeah. you know, in a yeah. universe that's that small. Yeah, just this this general idea of uh, competition between studios. Disney has an opportunity to crush the competition. You could just see Richard Williams just like, you know, you have that small community and it's just like you have that third glass of wine and you talk to the wrong person and suddenly like a whole studio's like moving forward with a, with a project that they might have... You know, they might have had on the back burner. I mean, Arabian Nights tales, they're out there. And it's a source that people can draw from and artistic inspiration. And so you you can't really tie it to them. You have a fazir with a bird that does not like this, like, really poor person that the princess brought into the, you know, like, there's just so many similarities. And He's I feel like it's one thing to say, you know, oh, there's a lot of when you're when you're looking at folk tales, when you're right. looking at, you know, historic narratives, there are a lot of tropes that exist exactly. that might recur across different, you know, different medias that take inspiration from similar sources. But when you look at, you know, the design of the characters, yes it feels like there's correlation there yeah, not to like create a conspiracy theory, but like the theory already exists. Like it, the, when you yeah. look at the design of princess yum, yum, yes, that's her name. It's very unfortunate, but true. Princess yum, yum and princess well. and princess Jasmine, you look at them and you're like, Oh, <laughs> and that's, you know, that's one of the questions that I have about the, this movie and like also about Aladdin and also about, you know, other iterations of this movie is like how much, of the design was these two studios like referencing one another and how much of it is like white man orientalism like how how much of it is racist stereotypes of character designs it's a good question and i think that those two things are related because you know all things are intersectional etc etc but i it it just sort of begs the question like how much of this is our collective imagination of what stereotypes from parts of the world that we are only familiar with often through stereotypes look like and how much of it is, well, Richard Williams made a princess who was a hot babe in harem pants and therefore we Disney will also make (laughs) a hot babe in harem pants who's like stands up to her incompetent father who has a long white beard and a white turban. Like it's, you know, how much of it how many blue people are there in these stories? Like, let's, let's, let's really narrow this down, but yeah. Um, let, let's talk about what happens before anything else. We have to start with a drinking game. The drinking game is you have to take a shot or take a drink or how, depending on how much alcohol you wish to consume every time someone says golden balls. Excellent. And I am all, 
instantly upset that you did not tell me about this before I watched it. <laughs> I would have been gone to the void at this point oh, because yes. <laughs> okay, metaphors... wait, I'm sorry. I feel like I feel like we should clear this up yes. for people who are listening to this who haven't seen the movie. Okay. The premise is there is an idyllic city in the middle of the desert where goodness reigns and all is lawful. And the city is protected by a prophecy that a minaret that stands in the middle of the city, which has three golden balls on the spire of the minaret, protect the city from evil. And were those three golden balls ever two? That's two now. Three, I guess, if you count the initiation for those keeping track at home. Should the three golden balls ever be removed from the minaret, then the city would immediately be plunged into great danger. So that's sort of the the overlying plot component that's important. And then you have within the city the princess and her father and the vizier. So if you think about it's thinking thinking about Aladdin, which is a movie that I presume a lot of people are familiar with, you have sort of a similar cast of characters. You have an incompetent king who is asleep for most of the, his name is King Nod, haha, he's asleep for most of the movie, and or fondling a prostitute, that's, that's a part that's of the movie there. that's not included in the, in the children's cut. So you have this king who's incompetent, the kingdom is run primarily by his evil vizier who looks evil in a very recognizable way. Voiced by Vincent Price, which Vincent is Vincent Price, like, yes. I was not aware until I was like, ah, mm, mm, I know that. Classic. So, uh, you know, a, a goateed blue vizier with lots of he's he is wearing, not like, to be trusted two rings on every finger and his fingers are very long and be jointed and he has like long toes and all that stuff so stereotypically evil looking vizier stereotypically incompetent king and then stereotypically skinny babely princess who is i think it might be played up a little more in the miramax cut but she's sort of outspoken and invested in her own independence in the way that analogously Princess Jasmine is in yeah. Aladdin. So you have those characters inside the castle. Outside the castle is Tack, the cobbler, who in the recobbled cut is mute for the whole movie. He says nothing. Constantly uh, shutting tacks as well. Yeah, well, he, so his mouth is like a, a V-shape made of tacks. He's very stylized mm-hmm. to compensate, presumably for the fact that he doesn't have any dialogue. So Tack, the cobbler, who's sort of Clumsy, good-hearted, but not terribly competent either. And then you have the thief, who is also a character who operates without dialogue, who looks sort of like a trash heap with like a dirty sheet over it, with like a small head sticking out. And he is equally incompetent, mostly exists for comic relief, but also lives outside the castle. And so when when I think about the character design of Tack and the Thief, it's sort of like they are both fundamental to the plot, but in different ways. Yes. The Thief is presented as sort of like explicitly self-serving. He exists only to steal and serve his own sort of selfish, greedy needs. And Tack is sort of like... Yeah, chronically unsuccessful as well as part yes. of his character. He just... Well, that's the gag. It's like right. he exists for sight gags. His mm-hmm. sight gags are always that he sees something that looks enticing, attempts to steal it, fails in a way that is slapstick comedic, and then is undeterred 
but tries again. And he's followed by like a cloud of flies. That's his, his entourage. He's followed by this cloud of flies that hovers around his head like an inverse halo. Well, I guess if we want to do like a quick overview, um, Tack becomes entangled with the vizier. The vizier wants to throw him in prison and get him beheaded for his insolence or whatever in the way that overly powerful people constantly want to punish others for insolence. Oh, greatest king of all the earth, this lowborn cobbler of no worth attacked me in the square today. Shall we take his head away? Princess Yum Yum finds him appealing and wants to rescue him. So she starts breaking all her shoes and tells her dad that she's like, daddy, I need a cobbler. And then he p- protects him from being immediately murdered. And then it becomes apparent that the vizier is attempting to grab power. It's bad. It's and bad. Tack is the only one who can prevent that from happening. And one of the things that I wanted to point out, uh, and it was something that just came into my head, um, is just another uh, comparison to Aladdin, is that you you have those characters that live in Aladdin and Abu. Like, Abu is is the thief. He has no dialogue, and he just takes stuff. He, he, he puts Aladdin in strange situations that he has to get out of. Like when he, he steals the giant red ruby, which in that cave, we do have a scene that gets moved around in both these cuts where the thief steals a giant green ruby. And there is also a giant red ruby that is where a, a thievery is attempted. So yeah, Excellent. it's, but I think, you know, the thing that's interesting drawing this parallel between Aladdin and Abu and Tack and the nameless thief in Thief and the Cobbler is that, you know, Abu serves as like a, a fo- not a foil to Aladdin, but like he is a component directly to Aladdin's character development or like he informs Aladdin's behavior. He is a confidant to Aladdin. Like they're friends. They operate as a unit uh, they inform one another. And although Tack and the thief do interact in person, I wouldn't say that they like inform right. one another's behavior. They're always in the same scene because the thief always needs a setup to do something funny. But I, I don't know that they sort of exist in opposition. And I think that there are people who would argue the opposite. But I think that when I'm trying to think about characters that complement one another, I think that Tack, who is a hero who says nothing and is not conniving because he's not really capable of being conniving. He's not that smart. He's not that interesting. But just on sort of the pure goodness of his heart and the goodness of his intent, he's able to save the day and win the girl and, you know, win everybody's affection. And the vizier, in, in that instance, when you're sort of comparing characters who are foils of one another, the vizier who talks incessantly, is constantly scheming and trying right. to come up with a way to like steal or to take the thing that he wants through manipulation and trickery, those are characters that complement one another. And the thief complements Tack in the sense that like they are both voiceless characters who navigate their way through sort of an uncaring environment in different ways, but I don't think that they necessarily serve one another in a plot sense in the way that the vizier and Tack, the vizier's name is Zigzag, by the way, which is like just the absurdity of this movie is like so many layers. Oh, it's you, Zigzag. Now I have to figure out which came first, Zigzag like rolling papers or Zigzag the character. Gosh, I, I, I think that's one of those 
correlation, not causation, or no. It, they're not, I think it's a coincidence. I don't think they're related. I just had this anyway. image, image of a bearded man on the label, and I'm like, what's, what's, going, what's going on there? <laughs> I'm like, how many times have I heard the, the, you know, the name zigzag? So I think that, so this is one of the things that's interesting to me about the Miramax version versus this mm-hmm. fan-made version, which is theoretically the platonic ideal of this movie were it to be finished. And so I'm just going to come out and say it. I think that, and I think this might be exposure bias or what have you, but I think that the Miramax version is like a better movie. I know I'm, I am, um, what's the, what's the word that I'm like? Oh, an uncultured swine. I believe Ah, is is what one would say. So, but here's, here's the thing. Explain yourself. Yes. So it's, Bad. I'm just going to say that, like, the Miramax version is not a great movie in the sense of, like, there are a lot of contemporary Disney and Pixar movies that you would uphold as, you know, really art, art films. And I think that this version of The Thief and the Cobbler that's presented not as a children's movie is, it's like a work of art. And the and when you consume it in that way, when you consume it purely through the lens of form, you're like, oh yeah, this is an ideal presentation of the form of animation and what it can achieve when it's done with care and intensity and intention. But I think in terms of a plot that is engaging and hits all the right notes and maybe, you know, maybe I'm just sort of dumbed down by eons and eons of consuming Disney content meant for children that adults presume are idiots. But I think that the thing, the thing that really clinches it for me with the Miramax version is that the thief talks and he has this sort of running. So the thief and the cobbler are both animated so that their mouths don't move very much because they're not intended to to say anything throughout the Miramax version the cobbler narrates in a way that is like extremely banal and grating and not useful to the plot. And he has this sort of Matthew Broderick voice. That's like super annoying. So anyway, that part dumb, but the thief as a character, I think with his internal monologue is very, the sort of like world weary caustic, you know, like New Yorker. And I think that that makes him a more engaging character because in the YouTube version where he says nothing, he exists purely for slapstick. He exists just to do visual gags. And I think that those visual gags are fine, but they become predictable over the course of the movie, culminating in this Rube Goldberg scene where all he does is just like 10 minutes of visual gags. And I think that they're, the intention of those visual gags is to show the way that animate, to make the animation work harder, essentially, to make the animation do the joke for you. The idea that this joke can exist without words. And I think that that's a worthy goal. But the, the thief himself as a character has no depth. His existence is only to be a joke. But in the Miramax version, he has this very engaging internal monologue essentially just sort of like a a train of thought just like a steaming train of bits that he just does over the course of all of his scenes and most of his scenes are just him as a character alone doing something silly and so he doesn't 
you know, he doesn't interact in any meaningful way with other characters outside of those other characters being props. So the image that is cultivated of the thief is that he is sort of like an incompetent, bumbling idiot. But the narrative that he's given when he's given a voice makes it clear that he's not an idiot. He's very smart. He's articulate. He makes good jokes that are timely and like fit well. He has a good sense of humor. He has a good vocabulary. Those are all things that give him depth as a character because they subvert your expectations of him. You see him, he's a fly-covered, stinking pile of trash. He's colored in these, like, nasty trash colors. He, like, wears a giant... He wears, like, a poncho, I guess, or just, like, a giant sheet. Um, He's, like, raggedy-looking and, like, gross and unwashed. And you're like, all right, I have an expectation of this character and how he will act. And he does act that way. But with this addition of his comedic narrative, which is cultivated in such a way to invert your expectations, it makes his jokes more funny. I'm not, like, a humor scientist or whatever. This is just, like, my personal (laughs) assessment, which is just that he serves the narrative better when there's more depth to his character, especially because often in... The scenes with the thief, he's the only character that you see. He he doesn't he operates in a parallel narrative to that of the primary narrative, which is of Tack the Cobbler and Princess Yum Yum and you know the hero's yeah. journey or his stories are almost completely on their own. Like he you could easily have a series of Absolutely. shorts that are outside of uh, outside of this film. And what's interesting that you you talk about uh, going back to your point on how the Miramax version is a better film for general audiences. Like it hits these familiar beats, it it has songs, it it meets these expectations. And we'll we'll get to the song, so don't don't you worry. But it ha- it meets these expectations that when you go to a theater and you pay money to see an animated film in in the United States in the nineties, it's going to be giving you these things. It's commercial. It's commercially it's commercial. acceptable. It was designed to be that way. And sometimes, you know, that's what you want. Sometimes you just want to consume something dumb. And this is a way in which Richard Williams may have been ahead of his time. And like, I don't know that that's true. I'm sure that there were lots of like art house films that were being made at the time, but like to try and make an art film out of a historical context with this like very labor intensive animation, it's a hard thing to do. It's difficult. And I think that there are are more people doing it now than there were, you know, at the height of Richard Williams career. And I think even now people have a hard time marketing serious animated films there's just it's it's really hard to do it i think that there is serious animation that gets like slipped into animation that's marketed as for children i think that there is adult animation and it's like aimed at adults but it's marketed in such a way that it's like oh it's crass it has crude humor it like attracts people who are interested in watching something not sort of lofty but rather like an aged up cartoon for kids that's just like a hundred percent fart jokes and also existential dread but like uglier i think that like people are trying to do it in the in like a western media canon i think that there's lots of like serious animation that exists outside of the western media canon but when you're talking specifically about a media canon an animation institution that's dominated by disney and has been for decades Disney has all of the marketing power. It creates the culture or what the United States perceives as the culture of animation. And it's hard to operate outside of that, especially when Disney is actively snatching your plots and yeah. <laughs> creating their own multi-million dollar feature films out of them. 
And kind of to, to delve back into kind of William's mind, this is a very much a passion project that we've already mentioned, you know, that he was working on for decades. So something of his pure creation. One of the big problems with that is that he is building a movie that he himself finds amusing, that he himself finds artistic, challenging, all of those things. And the difficulty with that is, is whenever you, you know, laser focus into that, when you focus one of your main characters into a, a, a Charlie Chaplin uh, or Wiley e. Coyote role, you can watch a few like Wiley e. Coyote shorts. Can you watch 90 minutes of... Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner and you know it holds your attention or do you need to add things in order to keep that audience involved and so there's this, this and big, can yeah. you appreciate the Wiley Coyote slapstick as its own art form exactly every time you see it over the course of an hour and 45 minutes exactly especially when some of these you know sequences last a very very long time and so you you kind of have this doomed to fail like series of events coming up where you have uh, an artist who is, you know, at the top of his game, extremely talented, one of the greatest of all times, uh, as far as animation goes, building something, making something that's very much in his wheelhouse of interests, and then asking for more money, and the studios realizing that general audiences are not going to be that involved in this, that are that, like the word of mouth after this movie initially comes out is going to tank the film. <laughs> like there's going to be that huge drop between weeks one and two. And you see this again and again, where you have total creative control with one person. And oftentimes people argue like you have to give the artist complete control. You have to give them like, you know, the final cut, the final say, and then we'll get the true art. But that's also how you get the Star Wars prequels. Like when you don't have... Oh no! <laughs> when you don't have people... So cruel! Right? But you don't have people that say no to you. And like, even though the Arabian Night like version is still not a great film, it might be a better film for general audiences because it, it's starting to hit those beats that, you know... Art museums and a, you know, certain galleries and certain works aren't for everyone. And that's kind of the point is to have this personalized experience. But whenever you spend millions of dollars on a film, you're kind of in this catch-22 situation where you're trying to have this artistic purity and to have total control of your project. But then it's, it's going to be a money sink. You have these projects that, that develop a cult following over time because people be, find the art on their own and become fans of it, not because it was marketed to them during the spring of whatever year. And so you have to be more invested in the long run, but trying to convince studios to sink millions of dollars in order to make up billions of dollars over the course of 20 years isn't the most convincing argument. And that's how you get this recut over and over. It's, it's kind of fascinating to me where you have this tug of war between art and between like, you know, studio survival because capitalism, capitalism, right? Like these uh, animation studios have to employ a large number of animators. And if all of a sudden you have a budget of uh, $100 million and you make 20, how do you pay your employees? <laughs> like these, this is a basic math problem in the end. We have these characters set up. 
We have Princess Yum Yum. We have the Vizier. We have Tech. We have the Thief. We there's one character that we have yet to mention, uh, and that is the 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 King of the One Eyes. Whatever metaphors you want to take out of that. There are like a host of secondary yeah. characters that yeah. sort of come in in the second half of the movie. So we have the One Eyes, who are sort of a very if you think about Mulan and the Huns, it's sort of like an Attila the Hun character very dehumanized a monster with this enormous endless infinite army of violent mindless zombies who are gonna come and enact you know desperate depraved violence on the golden city which is you know the pinnacle of all that is light and good you have them you have the barbarians who are and an also another like bumbling incompetent tribe that Princess Yum Yum and her caravan encounter in the desert in their quest to find help for the Golden City. And she just adopts them. She's like, you're mine. Man. She does. She really just like with her feminine wiles, she just is like, you are now my royal guard. And they're like, okay. It's just, and so this, I don't remember very many of the songs from the Miramax version of this movie, but I do very distinctly remember the song that the barbarians sing, which I will not sing for you because I don't remember how it goes. All I remember is that the chorus line is... We're what happens when you don't finish school. That's fantastic. Excellent. I recommend that everyone go out and attempt to find if even if you can't, you know, find it within yourself to be invested in both versions of this movie or any version of this movie. I do recommend that you go onto YouTube and try and dig up this terrible terrible song because it really is an immaculate pinnacle of shitty 90s animated slapdash like this is what kids like right they like songs about how if you don't go to school you become a cannibal barbarian idiot who lives in the desert and can't read sure record that put it in a movie it'll make millions of dollars people will love this and then at the same time you have like this princess who just she just loves the poor like, she loves tech, she loves these guys, you know, like, she's got to help them and has all the empathy in the world. But then at the same time, do these characters serve any function in the plot of the Miramax film? Like, No, do, literally is, not. I mean, they yeah. don't serve any more plot in the Miramax film than they do in the recobbled version. Yeah, but because... They, arguably, they, they serve even less plot. They're just, they're essentially just, like, props that sing. They are essentially these side characters that kind of fill that pad the film, let's be honest, um, and they get adopted and then they are clumsy and funny. You could tell that like Richard Williams and, and his company, like they realized that there was a lack of characters. There was a lack of dialogue that, that there wasn't, there weren't any relationships. So there had, they had to shoehorn one in there at some point. One of the big questions that you have for these types of characters is um, what do you do? Uh, if you're going to be inserting characters into a film, you're going to set them up. You want to have them be paid off eventually. Like, oh, the princess has adopted these rogues from the desert. Maybe these rogues save her somehow because, you know, her good fortune and her goodwill towards them uh, is paid off. But really at the end of <laughs> of both versions, they're just kind of there in the last battle. They're like, yeah, go 
tech and watch this Rube Goldberg machine burn everything. Awesome. You know, I wonder how much of that expectation for character success or expectation for character follow-through or development is part of maybe like a, a white Western lens of how narratives need to progress. And one of the things that I, I wish that I had spent more time on before we recorded this episode was that this one of the articles that I read was mentioned that the movie was based on sort of Persian and Ottoman paintings and also oh. like Sufi folk fables. Okay. So I wonder how much of the story and how much of the plot is directly tied to the narrative. It's sort of, you know, it's questionable to imagine how much of how how direct and authentic of a replication it actually is. I right. have very um I don't necessarily have high hopes for the uh authenticity of this movie, but I do wonder, you know, when we think about characters that serve a purpose or characters that like complete the hero's journey arc and like evolve into a more useful right. part of the plot, how much of that is our conditioning to anticipate that, you know, characters will follow the trajectory that we're familiar with. And then, you know, when you take a, a narrative that doesn't exist within that expectation, you try to like cram it into a 90 minute feature length film for kids which even further reinforces that perception of narrative. How does it make, how does that structure make it more notable that there are so many characters in this movie who are just like disposable? Right. You've also just kind of described a a whole nother podcast episode. I feel like you could like choose like five, you know, films or series that have tangential, you know, side characters and, do their stories pay off? Should their stories pay off? Does it add depth to the world? Is it dissatisfying that they don't do anything with their with their time on screen? You know, like I think it's a I think it's a good question because we do have these expectations that characters should grow, characters should have some sort of progression and payoff, uh, or some come to some sort of reward for their loyalty or some sort of punishment for their uh, their mistakes. And so, yeah, I think it's it's just interesting because of how jarring these brigands uh, out in the desert, how they're introduced, they're given, just going back to the animation, they, they're given, you know, thousands of man hours to animate. And then it goes nowhere. <laughs> and it's I mean, just, they're all, like, very carefully designed. Like, they they're are. all unique looking. They all look different. Like, they're notably carefully designed characters who have like full screen time of maybe like 10 minutes. <laughs> right. Uh, moving on to another character in the second half, uh, we have the, uh, the witch that the uh, Sultan King Nod is given, you know, Princess Yum Yum and Tack and the nurse. Like, all right, you're going to save us and, and reclaim. The nurse, you forgot to talk about the nurse. The nurse with the giant arms. Gorilla arms nurse. <laughs> Gorilla arms nurse that has she really to. Doesn't have her role is also mostly jokes. The joke is. is that she is a feeble old woman with giant gorilla arms and she'll kick your ass. That's yes. the joke. The and end. then she has high standards for anybody who enters the uh, princess's uh, you know sphere or circle, which is another trope that you see in so many of these like animated films where you have like you know overly protective grandma character. Exactly. 
who also might have like some sort of mystic otherworldly strength or power where it's like, all right, the real, the real strong one in this party is actually the nurse whose, whose arms are bigger than, you know, tax entire body. And so, uh, so you have the nurse, then you have them go to the witch where the payoff for that, <laughs> the prophecy is just attack, 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 attack. You see, yeah, there you go. And then she, after climbing a tower of hands, which is, you know, another wonderful, like, animated moment of just nightmare fuel of, like, boy, oh, boy, I hope I don't dream of climbing a tower of hands soon. Um, that would be very specific. She tells them this riddle and then just blows herself up. And she's like, you know what? I've been in this movie too long. I'm out of here. Have a good time. You guys are going to win anyway because, you know, like uh, misguided uh, fate, as long as you have a good heart, always wins out in the end. That's the moral of the story. See? But it's what you do with what you got. The character of the witch design is like very notable, like old, wrinkled, crone, pendulous breasts. Like pendulous is a really crazy. Great and she, there's there's a scene where she like I don't. It's like a pre Rube Goldberg War Machine scene where she like yeets herself into a basket and then gets high on some magical fumes to like determine what the outcome of the war will be. All of that is absent from the Miramax version. In the Miramax version, they go to the Tower of Hands, they climb up the Tower of Hands, the witch is an eyeball who turns into a ghost, and her lines are functionally the same. She just goes, she like tells them a riddle, a riddle that's also a pun, and then she like disappears and that scene is over. But in the Recobbled version, there's like a whole section that was very unsettling animation. Because if I had seen it as a child, I probably would never have watched this movie ever again. And the Miramax executives knew that. They were like, this is not, we can't market this. You want to praise artists and their artwork, but you you just have to come back to like, capitalism is the bane of our existence. But at the same time, if you're going to be spending an untold amount of dollars to animate pendulous old, you know, witch breasts. What are you doing? <laughs> what are well, you doing? Thing. <laughs> With your millions of dollars, what are you doing? Animating pendulous witch titties. I think that this is the thing is like when, when he talks about making animation grow up, like what does that mean? What does, does that mean? Jokes about golden balls. Does it mean like, old ladies getting high off of cave fumes doesn't mean don't worry well we have yet to talk about the throne of women oh no god (laughs) i think the the throne part part that that did happen in the miramax version which Mm -hmm. i was kind of astonished to see but i think that they were like well maybe like the kids won't notice that this um, otherworldly monster villain sits on 
a chair made of live prostitutes. Yes. Yes. This is, this is how we imagined, you know, Genghis Khan folks. Like this is, this is, this is reality. And don't worry. We spent many, many, you know, hours of work uh, animating this. You can tell this character is evil, not purely because he has like a giant shark mouth full of numerous rows of teeth, but also because he sits on ladies. Yes. There are a lot of bad B films with lazy writing that have, you know, like some sort of violence against women be the, be the way, you know, the bad person is bad. Right. And it's a trope and it comes up often, especially, you know, in these like not thought out B, you know, like films. That's true of both of the, both of the villain characters in this movie. Yeah. I feel like Richard, God love you, Richard. It's easy. Right, exactly. Like, he spent so much time animating, like, the thief doing these amazing panoramic acrobatic feats that took so much time and so much of his, like, talent and heart that he's like, hmm, we had a scene where the One-Eyes murdered everybody, but how do I get across that they're extra bad more bad than these other bads that people have seen in like the black cauldron or, you know, like uh, Maleficent, like how do we make the, them stand out even more? And you know what? Let's, let's make a film that seems like it's for families, but also throw in these really strange moments of misogyny that, you know, as long as it's the bad guy doing it, it's excusable because we're going to punish the, the, the antagonist by the end of the film, which is like, just, you know, so that's the thing that was notable and surprising to me about the recobbled version. In the Miramax cut, you see the big bad sitting on his throne of whores. And at the end, he's defeated. His war machine like falls apart in flames. But you don't see him again. At no. the end. If I recall, you don't see him again at the end of the movie. But in the recobbled cut, there's a, a, a part that is missing from the Miramax version where... There's this whole introductory scene where Zigzag goes to the one Eyes camp and tries to ally himself with them because the, the king won't promise him that he can have Princess Yum Yum after he saves the city. So he goes to the one Eyes and he's like, here's the deal. I help you murder everyone in this city. You kill everybody, do whatever you want. You leave the princess alone so that I can have her. And the one eyes are like, ha, 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 fuck you. But so the introduction to this scene (laughs) is that Zigzag walks in and there's this carnival. And I should mention that the the one-eye women are like orcs. They're just like huge and stacked and green. And they also have one eye and like many rows of teeth. But the primary thing that differentiates them from the one-eye soldiers is that they have huge tits and they wear tiny little shorts. That's it. That's the, that's the difference. There you go, folks. The two genders. There's the, this part, notably, in the scene where he, he, the leader of the one-eyes, says to his assembled cadre throne and then they like form a throne with their bodies which he sits on and i think in the miramax cut you just see him already sitting on his throne and And you notice it or you don't point it out to you yeah exactly but then at the end of the recobbled cut as the war machine falls apart and the leader of the one eyes like cries in despair all of his 
throne. Um, what's the word I'm thinking? His of? throne harem. His throne. <laughs> thank you. Precisely. His throne harem approaches him, and they all say throne, and then they sit on him, and like that's the end. That's his the end of his arc, and like. Yeah. So I don't know. I guess maybe Richard Williams was like, it's not misogyny if the orc women get their revenge by sitting on their leader and smothering him with their giant orc butts. And but like, only after his giant war machine has gone gone to pure flames and all yeah, of his they're soldiers. Not, they don't are, have any agency. They just take advantage of the moment when it's exactly. There. Yeah, exactly. Feminism, so you, folks. Emasculation only comes when you lose power by by fault of your own. Dun, dun, dun. When you think about the, the female characters in this movie, you know, and this is like a sad and boring road to go down, but you have Princess Yum Yum, who is young and beautiful, desired by all, good-hearted, obviously the heroine. You have the witch, who is like crusty and insane and has tits that drag on the floor you have the one-eye orc women who are literal props that get sat upon um that's it yeah this film does not pass the bechdel test sorry (laughs) if you were hoping uh for a a really progressive film that holds up in the modern age um this one is not for you although it is beautifully animated are there women characters that i'm forgetting i feel like there are not oh and there's the nanny the, yeah, yeah. With the nanny who arms. is like sort of a, yeah, she's just sort of like a, a genderless, sexless shape. She wears like a, a hunchback. Know, like a almost. tent. Yeah. Yeah, like a black tent. Well, her I mean, body, this is. Her body and the thief's body are actually sort of analogous. They're both just like lumps. I, this, this is all still coming from a man who designed Jessica Rabbit in a lab. You're right. When <laughs> right? you're right, you're right. Also, you know, do cartoons made for adults like historically have a long and storied history of empowered women characters who are not designed for the male gaze uh no they they don't they 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 tend to be animated by giant boys clubs so i mean so uh where's the standard the standard is under the ground the standard is under the ground the standard is we're, we're working on it we can appreciate art and also understand the ways in which it is problematic that exactly is- exactly and i think one of the big things about this film is like about all films really is like going back to kind of big themes that things that i always like to hit whenever i'm discussing a film is like when it was released uh, it being a product of its time you know it's a trite saying oh it was a product of its time but no it really like the minds and the culture of the people that made it, you know, and how it's, how it fits into the larger lexicon of films informs us of how we should interpret it when people watch it then versus how we should feel about it now. But what the interesting thing about this film is going back to its longevity uh, of its production is like, it was birthed in the mind in the sixties and it was beginning to be drawn in earnest and voiced in the seventies. And it's really amazing. Like the strength of the film isn't its plot. Let's go, let's go to this point. The strength of the film is its animation. The reason why you watch it is you want to be wowed and you want to see these amazing sequences. But what I found that struck me uh, just kind of looking at it in general without knowing too much about it is that it felt like I was watching, you know, three or four decades of animation happen to me all at once. 
The 60s and the 70s is very apparent in the art style. And you trends had changed by the time that this was released. But if you've created, you know, like 30 minutes of film and spent like $50 million in 20 years of your life, like you, we're not changing the art style now. Um, we're just going to tweak it as we go along further into the film. When you say like this is a product of its time, right. I feel like people feel like that's a cop out. This is right. like, oh, it's a product of its time and therefore we can't, you can't hold it to the standard of, you know, contemporary thought. And like, I agree that in some ways it is a cop out. But when we say it's a product of its time, we mean it's a product of a white Western animation studio staffed almost presumably entirely by men in, yep. you know, the 1960s. And it was led by a man whose focus was form. Exactly. He was invested in the art form of animation. He was invested in what animation could do as art. I don't want to put words in his mouth. I'm not yeah. a Richard Williams scholar, but like, it's clear that he was invested in the form. It's less clear that he was invested in, for instance, the narrative or... Right the cultural relevance or the way that it preserves like an ancient literary tradition, it's possible that the presumption was that excellent delivery of form will carry all of those things. When the form is perfect, the content will also inherently be perfect, which is a thing that we have to ask ourselves when we make art. Is that true? I would say no. (laughs) You know, how does the art that we make serve the narrative that we're trying to produce? Because, you know, I would argue that all things are narrative Mm -hmm. in the human mind. You know, we exist to discover patterns and find things relatable and you can't, it's hard to do that without a narrative. Things stir inside of us this, this idea of of story. And that's why we find them compelling is because why are they relatable to us? Because they align with our story, our personal experience, our narrative. So that I think brings us around to this final question of like, when art is hemmed in by capitalism, which it is in all cases, we all live in a capitalist hellscape where art can only exist when there's demand, et cetera. When art is trapped by capitalism does this prevent us i guess from being able to appreciate or even create something that is purely form consumers are to generalize so invested in what they are exposed to as narrative and sometimes that exposure leads to a desire for whatever the opposite of that thing is So where, I don't know, where is there room for that? Where is there room for the Richard Williams of animation when animation has to be funded somehow by studios that are progressively running out of money over the course of 30 years or by Richard Williams himself, who is also progressively running out of money over the course of 30 years, when art is forced to exist in this universe where it has to have purpose, it has to have a narrative, it has to fit into the expectations of the consumer public, does that prevent artists from being able to really fully explore 
the depths of what form can serve? I don't know. This is like a lofty question that is. is maybe like doesn't serve this podcast, but like, that's what I think about when I watch this movie is like, we think about, and we talk about, you know, the desire for animation to grow up or Richard Williams specifically talks about the desire for animation to grow up, to, to serve new purposes, to meet new standards, to set new standards for what art and film can be. And there are movies that have done that. There are shows that have done that. There are shows that are doing that now. And it's difficult because they're always faced by these boundaries of what is valuable. What do we as a consumer culture value? And how is the consumer's sense of value held in opposition to the nature of art, which, you know, in some ways exists outside of capitalism, outside of value. Not always. Sometimes it exists in direct relationship to capitalism, but I feel like often, you know, art is something more than that, something more than X number of million British pounds in like 1965 or whatever. Like, what is the dollar amount that we can put on an exploration of a form to its absolute limit? Because when you watch these scenes, like there's a chase scene through the palace that's entirely perspective tricks and it's all animated in black and white to just make the, to make the perspective hit you in the face just as much as possible over and over again. And it's sort of overwhelming, but when you see it, you're like, this is a person who is pushing the form to the absolute limit. When we watch this final scene, this really overly long, just like drudgery slog of a battle where you watch this huge, you know, monstrous, overly complicated bullshit war machine fall apart all because of like one single, you know, butterfly effect action. You see, you know, scene after scene after scene after scene, that's all functionally the same thing. It's like something makes something like something fall over and then this breaks and it's just like, you know, it's, it becomes a trigger or whatever. And it's like, you know how it happens, you know what it's going to do. It's going to fall apart and then happily ever after. But that scene is not about serving the ending of the narrative. The scene is about pushing animation, hand-drawn animation to its just absolute limit. Like, how can I make this as complicated as possible? And after I've done that, how can I push it even further than that? And how can it, like, how complicated can I make it before people start to lose track of what's even happening? I would not be surprised if you had a full storyboard of the Rube Goldberg machine that is the the one-eye war machine collapsing in flames that it could be like physically mapped scene by scene. Like you could print out a still of each major scene and like put them all up on a wall and like be able to follow the actions through it. How much thought has gone into this scene, but yeah, like kind of going off of your, your general idea of when you're allowed to push the limits and kind of get to those limits. Inversely, sometimes you see excellence, not really intentionally be formed but almost like it's weird it's intentional and it's not where like sometimes you have these major constraints where sometimes a series best episode are the ones where you just have three characters in a room and there aren't these you know giant reaction reaction moments and it makes me wonder that if like williams had some sort of you know, constraint pressing down on him, not being like some sort of exterior like uh, company, but just some sort of, hey, like, let's rein it in here. You've only got this much left. We got to fit this in this box somehow. 
But at the same time, you have that catch-22 of his dedication to having like one picture per frame. And that's what it always came down to. And you can just tell, you know, that the perspective and the characters and the flow of the animation was always primary and the plot and the uh, character progression and character development and just overall moral of the story was was secondary or not even, you know, not even secondary at this point. And like when you talk about sometimes scenes in movies are best when it's just two or three characters in a room, like those scenes are carried by narrative they're carried by character development they're carried by all those things that were secondary to this movie which is primarily just like a vehicle for form this this question of who was gonna put the brakes on for richard williams like who was the the driving instructor in the passenger seat who was just gonna press the instructor brake and be like you're done buddy like we're done and the answer is that it was the studio they were just like nope like we're We're yoinking your budget like you gotta go and i feel like people especially folks who are ardent fans of Richard Williams see that as a great injustice. There's like, this is, you know, how dare you, you know, impede this great work of art. And one of the other questions that I ask myself when I watch this movie and I think about this presentation of this movie as like a pinnacle of form. The other question is who gets to make works of art that are pinnacles of form like Williams is a white man like he made this narrative which he appropriated to be generous from Middle Eastern cultures Mm -hmm. there are a lot of character designs in this movie that are at my most generous probably racist caricatures and there are a lot of them that are openly racist characters like the you know this movie it would be very easy to interpret this movie in a way that is not generous to Richard Williams. And like, because he's a white man with a lot of resources and that is ultimately, you know, that's what puts us in this position of like, did somebody have to pull the plug on Richard Williams? He was like millions of dollars over budget. Yes. Who gets to make this film? Like Richard Williams got to make this film for 35 years, but the people whose culture it is, Mm -hmm. who, who gets that chance for them, like, who gets to make this movie in, in an authentic way? Not Richard Williams, but he did make this piece of art that is undeniably beautiful and in many, in many instances, in the instances that are complete scenes, impeccably animated. So, like, what is, what's the value that we put on art as the pinnacle of form? But then when you ask yourself that, you also have to ask the question of, like, who is given the resources to access that form to begin with, to learn that form, to curate that form, to make that form their career. And then after that, who is given the resources to invest 25, 30 years, their life's work into making, to pushing that form to the limit. And, you know, the answer, you know, is always going to be white men. (laughs) Yes. It's interesting. All this is just to say that, like, I would be enthused to see what, someone with, you know, an authentic relationship to this culture could do with this narrative, given the sort of unlimited resource that Richard right. Williams had for 25 years. If we could get, you know, like an animation studio and give them a similar budget and give them, you know, 
a decent time frame with the constraints of of the process, right? And just let them form their own narrative. Because yeah, I think that's probably the biggest travesty is the fact that yeah, this guy spent you know thirty years of his life building a, a magnificent art, artistic work that is still at the end of the day a work of appropriation. And if he was going to profit off this, if this was going to be a success, he wasn't drawing it any positive attention to that culture. He was only going to be drawing attention to his own talent and to his own like interpretation of what animation should be because he, he was trying to run counter to CGI. Like I imagine he was no fan of CGI if this is what he was doing. So he was fighting the good fight for art. And it's like, but who are you fighting for? It looks like you're fighting for yourself. <laughs> you're, you're building a narrative. He was for fighting for a standard of animation that was only accessible to people like him. <sighs> like that. I'm so used to being driven by characters. The visuals are always kind of secondary for me. If characters can't have some some form of growth, can't have some sort form of depth to them and emotion, because I, I I'm very drawn to relationships. So watching this film was difficult for me because, uh, and keeping my attention because you're just, you're waiting for the next scene at a certain point um, because you're like, yes, uh, the thief is in the gutters. I get it. Like, I get it. This is great. This is beautiful. But at a certain point, like you can only paint a sunset so many times, you know, and it be, you know, Unless you're Bob Ross, the Unless pinnacle of Ross. form. Yeah, because then at a certain point, you know, it's not about the form. It's about it's about the process. It's about transmitting knowledge from one from one human being to the next. And it's I think about the journey, Jeremy. It's about the journey. And I think that's really where, you know, the thief and the cobbler is really has already found its place and will continue to find its place in like the the history of animation is that it's not about the box office. It's not about the characters or the, uh, the, the overarching story or the setting or any of that. It is really about, you know, students and those who just love animation, seeing it pushed to its absolute, you know, limits and them hopefully taking the right lessons from it to be inspired to do the same with their own art. Cause I think, you know, one of the interesting things is, yeah, I, I would have never thought that you could make hand-drawn animation look 3D and to have it, you know, have perspective be a thing, I don't know, where you could give someone motion sickness with hand-drawn animation, which is like, <laughs> like, oh, cool. You know, it's there for the art. It's, it's for the art students. And that's where it's going to be. It's where, where it's going to live for, you know, the rest of the, the human race uh, history. I think that's the thing that, the thing that makes the, the Thief and the Cobbler is so compelling to me is like, I think when you think about it critically, you have to feel something about it. Like you, it's either like, I think this is stupid. I think that this is not compelling. I think that this is a waste of time. This is just some white man's passion project. There's no reason that anyone should give a fuck about it. Or, you know, I really am compelled by the effort. I'm astonished by the animation. You can feel both those things, but like, that's, to me, that's the reason why people are so drawn to this movie is it's so different, I think, from the things that we're used to seeing because it's, it focuses entirely on this, on this other component of narrative, the visual. And, you know, I think when, when you watch like a mediocre Disney movie, like when I watched The Good Dinosaur, I came out of the theater like, well, you know, 
whatever. That's like an hour and a half of my life. I'm never going to get back. You you, you come out and you're still actively trying to convince yourself that it was worth your time. And you're just like, Oh yeah, that wasn't so bad. Like that was great. Like if it pushes you to, to have critical thought about the nature of narrative, if it pushes you to understand more about the way that you consume media and why, or what draws you to the media that you consume or if it pushes you to have a greater appreciation for how challenging it is to animate something mm-hmm. or for how much animation is capable of that you're not exposed to ordinarily because it's just too time-consuming and expensive to really invest. Like, those are the kinds of things that, that make this movie compelling, not because the plot itself is compelling, not because the movie is good, but just because the story is crazy and the process is complex. And it, yeah. I think that the mythology of the film is what makes it engaging. And also the fact that every 15 minutes, someone says the golden balls, the golden balls. Yep. And you can just in general, like just imagine what you learn from seeing another person's mistakes on screen. You know, you're like, Oh, I am not going to uh, have my villain say throne and have his harem form a throne that he sits on. I feel like that's a little, that's a little heavy handed, but yes, we shall all strive to reach for those golden balls. Truly.